0: Psalm 107 is we're going to be taking our text today. But while you're turning there, let me just also say what a huge privilege it is for me to be here with you. Not only is this an opportunity for you to get to know me a little bit and for me to tell you about our church, but also for me to get to know you and to see what God is doing in this church. So after the service, I'll be in the parking lot where the coffee is, would love to say hi, get to know you a little bit better and celebrate what God is doing in your life and in this wonderful church family here in ventura thank you again for having me you've been so kind and hospitable and i really really appreciate it psalm 107 is where we're going to be taking our text this morning let me read the first three verses of the psalm and then pray and then we'll get to work in our sermon but psalm 107 hear now this reading of god's word give thanks to the lord for he is good his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Let's pray. Our great God, now with Bibles open, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand and to receive what you want to say to us today. May this be a time in which we not only understand more, but we're actually changed as we encounter Jesus. Use my words to help and encourage your people and to point us to Christ. We pray this together for your glory and for our good as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Certain Psalms are meant to bring comfort and encouragement to people in the midst of suffering and hardship. Other psalms are lament. They give voice to grief and anger against evil and injustice in the world. Still, other psalms are meant to be praise and thanksgiving for the attributes, the glory, and the bigness of God. Psalm 107 is different. Psalm 107 is an anthem. It's a rally cry for the people of God. This psalm is calling us to action. And what this psalm is calling us to do is there in verse two of the passage we just read. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. That's the call of this psalm for us today. And it's my hope, it's my prayer that Reality Ventura and Reality Church London, all the churches in our Reality family would be filled with people who are telling their story. And so that we might become such a people, I wanna look at this passage with you. And together as we look at it, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see what is the story of the people of God. Second, why to tell your story. Third, how to tell your story. And then fourth, the hero of the story. So what is our story? Why to tell it? how to tell it, and the hero that we need. Let's take a look. What first is your story? Now, every person has a story. It's their personal life story. You were born somewhere at a certain time. Your life is made up of moments and experiences, dreams and failures. Your life is filled with people, family and friends, enemies, strangers that you pass every day on the street. In your life, there have been joys, and there have been sorrows. There have been battles, and there have been victories. Some days feel totally ordinary, even mundane, and yet other days surprise you beyond your wildest imagination. Every person has a story, you have a story. And what this Psalm says is that if you're a Christian, if you're someone who has been redeemed, as we'll talk about in just a moment, Your individual personal life story is not erased, but it's drawn up into and connected to the story of God. This psalm is an invitation to see your life as part of God's story. And to connect your individual narrative to the story of what God is doing in the world. What he's been doing in all history. And this psalm, in a very powerful way, shows us what that story is. So look with me if you get again, verse 2. The author says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. That word redeemed is the way this psalm describes a person who's a Christian, a person who's redeemed, has been freed, has been brought out of something. And it's the psalm's way of describing the people of God, those who have been saved by him, those who are Christians. And what the psalm is saying is if you're a person who's redeemed, you have a story. The psalm does not say, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, if they have one. It assumes if you're a person following God, you have a story. And it is encouraging you to share it. So if you're a Christian here today, in just a moment, I'm going to outline your story. I'm going to say, this is what's true of you as a follower of God. But I know that there are some here today who don't identify as Christians. You're exploring the faith, maybe even a little bit skeptical about some of the claims of Christianity. Let me just say you picked a perfect Sunday to be here because here in just a few moments, I get to describe for you the story of God and what it could mean for your life. A perfect Sunday as you're exploring and investigating the claims of the Christian faith. So here's what we're gonna do. Looking at these three verses, I wanna spend a few minutes now unpacking, you might say plotting the major spots of the Christian story. There's four things that I want to show you. Let me give it to you in summary, and then we'll go and unpack each part of it. What is the story of the redeemed? Here it is. A love that never ends, freedom from a terrible enemy, a family to belong to, and a home that fits you. That's what the story of the redeemed is. This is your story if you're a Christian. And so let's go into each part of that and unpack it more fully. First, a love that never ends. Verse one says, "'Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever.'" To be a Christian is to receive the unending and unstoppable love of God. Now, you and I, when we use the word love, we use it in all kinds of ways. So as someone visiting California, I am happy to say, I love In-N-Out. And I do. But I also love my wife and daughter. And I don't mean the same thing when I say those two sentences. Different ways of thinking about the word love. Now, thankfully, in the Hebrew language in which the Bible was written, at least the Old Testament, we know that this word for love is hesed, And that's helpful because the word hesed is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's covenant relationship with his people. Covenant, what's that? It's commitment. It's a loyal love. It's a love that grows stronger as things get harder. It's a love that says, I am with you to the end, come what may. It's an unbreakable, unending, unstoppable love. And the psalm is declaring that if you're a Christian, if you're one of the redeemed, yours is a love from God that is unending, that is enduring, that is unstoppable. And when you read through the rest of Psalm 107, you know it's a long psalm and we haven't gone through all of it today. But what you'll see is there's all kinds of suffering that comes into people's life. Sometimes you suffer at the hands of others. Sometimes you suffer because of what we sometimes call natural disasters. Still other times you suffer because of your own sin and foolishness. And what's beautiful in the Psalm is that in every instance, it's God's love that is present. And so even for you today, if you feel like my life is falling apart and it's my fault because of mistakes that I've made, God's love endures forever. It's a love from which you cannot be separated, a love that will never end. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the night before his death, was with his disciples in the upper room about to have a meal together. You think about the passion of that moment. And as Jesus was there with his disciples, the author of John's Gospel Describes the heart of Jesus. I mean, he gives us a glimpse into Jesus's deepest emotions in that most pressing night. And we read in John chapter 13 that as Jesus was gathered there with his friends just before he died, this is what he felt. Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Sometimes when I read that, I want to ask John, love them to the end of what? But he doesn't tell us because you get to fill in the blanket to the end of anything. When you're out of strength, God's love is there. When you've come to the end of yourself, God's love is there. When you are faced with a situation and you have absolutely no idea what to do or how to proceed, God's love is there. When you are sick and weighed down because of your failures and your weaknesses and your shame, God's love is there. I mean, I, can't, I don't have the words to properly express what it means that God's love endures forever. All I can say, the harder it gets, the closer that love is. It is an unbreakable, unstoppable love. And this is the story of the people of God, a love that never ends. The second part of our story, freedom from a terrible enemy. Look with me at the end of verse two. It says, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. That's an allusion to the Exodus story. If you know the Old Testament, you know that the great event of God's deliverance for the people of God was the Exodus. They were in bondage in Egypt. The people were suffering under the hand of a terrible dictator named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was always saying to the people, More bricks, less straw. I want you to work harder, but I'm going to give you less resources to produce. And the people were suffering. They were in agony. And so they cried out. And God, in his mercy and grace, sends a deliverer. And by his own great activity, saves his people. He rescues them from Egypt. And they're delivered from bondage. And the people celebrate, this is what God did. He delivered us from a terrible foe, a terrible enemy. And the Exodus story, though historically true, is meant to be a pointer. It points us forward to the ultimate act of deliverance that God would bring, not from Pharaoh, but from the ultimate enemy, sin and death and the devil. You know, we talk about sin in the church a lot, and so it's easy for us to not really feel the force of what sin is in the Bible. Sometimes I think we think of sin as a set of wrong behaviors, doing bad things. And sure, that might be included. But sin at its heart is a posture of God avoidance. Sin at its heart is saying to God, I don't need you and I don't want you. I've got this, I'll do it myself. And sin then takes self and it puts self on the throne. We become self-absorbed, we become self-consumed and we live for self And we use everything and everyone around us for self to achieve an identity and meaning. And you know what happens? That little self that sits on the throne becomes like a harsh dictator that is always saying to you, more bricks but less straw. And so you move from person to experience, from vocation to relationship, trying to find freedom, trying to find peace and rest, and you ache and you're restless and never satisfied because you're looking to things to satisfy you in the only ways that God can. You see, sin ultimately is about self-absorption and it is a terrible taskmaster, absolutely crushing. But the Psalm says that if you're a Christian, if you've experienced the saving, redeeming work of God, you have been delivered from this terrible enemy. You have been set free. God breaking in and delivering you from the bondage of self-absorption. A love that never ends, freedom from the foe. The third part of our story, a family to belong to. You get a family. Look at verse three. Those that he gathered from the lands. I love that word gathered. This is the Sunday gathering. The church, the community, our story is that we've been gathered together together. We've come together from every direction to be a family, the family of God. That's what it means to be in the church. And notice the psalm says that God gathered us from the lands. That's important. It means people who came from all over, from different places with different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different languages, all this diversity coming together to be a community, a family, a community of diversity, not sameness, but oneness, not uniformity, but unity. To be a Christian is to have a story in which you have a family. You have brothers and sisters. Now, in a family, you belong to each other. You have a claim on each other's life. I have a younger brother, two years younger than me. We're very close. But when I was one year old, my parents did not sit me down and say, Bijan, We have something to talk to you about. We're thinking about having another kid, but before we do, we wanna know what you think about it. Because if we have another kid, it's gonna massively change your life. This kid will be your sibling, and therefore, their problems are going to be your problems. Their joys are gonna be your joys. Your whole life is gonna be shaped by having a sibling. So, would you like us to have another child or not? My parents never had that conversation with me. They just kinda went for it, and I had a brother. And I have a brother. And his problems have been my problems. And his joys have been my joys. My sorrows, my problems have been his, and I hope my joys too. But he's my brother. He has a claim on me. I have a claim on him. We belong to each other. But notice, I didn't choose him. I didn't pick. He was given to me. And the Psalm is saying that (laughs) the story of the people of God is you get a family. God does the gathering. You don't choose your family. God does. There are some people in this church that you would choose to be your best friends. And other people, not so much. But God picked them. We're a family. We belong to each other. We have a claim on each other. We get to walk with each other and support each other. We're super different, but we're one. And this is a family of support and sorrow, of accountability for temptation friendship in the midst of loneliness, love in the midst of shame, the family of God. You get a family. And the fourth part of our story, you get a home that fits you, a home that fits you. Again, verse three, those he gathered from the lands, from the east and west, the north and south, that the psalmist gives us those directions, east, west, north, south, is his way of saying that people were in exile. They were sent away from home, but now they've been brought back. They were once living in distant lands, but now they've been brought back home. They've been rescued from their exile. And so the story of God means you get a home. And what is home? Home is the place that fits you, where everything is just so. You know, I've been traveling a lot the past 10 days or so, and thankfully because of the kindness of God's people and churches, I've stayed in comfortable places. But you know that no matter how comfortable a place is, it's not home. I mean, home is the place where my programmable coffee maker is set just the way I like it. I've got my lamp on my desk, I've got my book stand. I mean, it shows you what I'm missing, you know? Home is where I fit, it's where I belong. Home is the place in which and with whom you feel safe, where you can take the mask off and you don't have to perform anymore. And you realize that the whole story of humanity has been a journey to try to get back home. Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve, the first humans rebel against God and sin comes into the world, you know what they do? The moment they're separated from God, they get fig leaves and they sew them together to cover themselves. Do you know why? Because they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. They don't feel safe. They feel exposed and vulnerable. Like they have to hide. The whole story of humanity is covering ourselves with fig leaves. We don't feel safe. We don't feel like we fit. We're not comfortable in our own skin. But the story of God is to give you a home. A place in which you're safe. A place in which you belong. A place in which you fit. You see, friends, this is the story of the redeemed, a love that never ends, freedom from the deadly foe, a community, a family that you get to be a part of, and a home that fits you forever. All the best stories have all those elements. Do you know why? Because those are the shadows, but this is the sun. Those stories are all pointing to this one. This is the true story of the whole world that we long to be a part of. This is the story of the redeemed. Now that leads us to ask, well, if that's what our story is, why does it matter that you tell your story? Why does it matter that Christians or a church is passionate about telling the story of what God has done? Why should we, as the redeemed, tell our story? And there are three reasons why it matters. So let me give them to you briefly. First, there is a cultural reason why it matters that you tell your story, cultural. Stories are everywhere. They're all around us. And stories are what shape people at the most fundamental level. So you can't answer the question, what should I do with my life? Until you first answer the question, of which story do I see my life being a part of? In order to give our lives meaning and to shape our most significant decisions, we all depend on some story. So Rebecca Solnit was right when she observed, what's your story? Stories are compasses and architecture. We navigate by them. We build our sanctuaries and our prisons out of them. To be without a story is to be lost in the vastness of a world that spreads out in all directions. Solnit is saying, to be without a story, you're lost. It's like a compass. And without it, you can't make heads or tails of life. Every person depends on some story to give them meaning and purpose. Now we're here in a church today. And so it's possible that as I'm saying all of this, there are those of you saying, yeah, of course, that's right. And my story is the story of God. The story that shapes me is the story of the Bible. But let me just say, it's very possible, even for those who come to church, who read their Bible, who identify as Christians, that the stories that are shaping you are actually the stories of our culture, not just the story of God and the Bible, because these stories are not only all around us, but they're very compelling, and they're presented very powerfully. I'll give you an example. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen the Frozen movies. As you know, you met my 16-month-old on the picture a few bits ago. We watch Frozen a lot. And believe it or not, we actually like the second one better, Frozen 2. And if you've seen Frozen 2, you'll know that the main character, Elsa, is on a quest. She's on a mission to figure out who she is. What's her purpose in life? What's she here for? I would actually suggest to you that Elsa's having a bit of an identity crisis in Frozen 2. And so she's on a journey to figure out who am I and what am I here for? And you get to the climactic moment of the movie and Elsa's gone through this path and she comes out into this opening and they're singing. And in that moment, Elsa hears sung to her, you are the one you've been waiting for all of your life. You are the one you've been waiting for. And that's the climactic moment. And everything sparkles and the music is going. Elsa gets a new dress. It's the big moment. Now what's happening? That's a story that says everything you need for your life, you just got to look inside. You've just got to look within. You are the one you've been waiting for. Now, that's a beautiful story. It's a Disney movie. It's really well done. But you know what that is? It's connected to the narrative in our culture of individualism. That you are self-sufficient on your own. That you don't need anyone or anything to tell you where to find meaning in life. You just look inside and you live out whatever you see. Now, that's a story in our culture that's shaping people profoundly, especially young people. So why does it matter that as a Christian, I tell my story? Well, it matters because I have a 16-month-old daughter who's growing up in a world in which those stories are present. And my invitation is to try to help her be more shaped by the story of God than she is by the story of Elsa. And friends, stories abound. And it matters for Christians and for churches to tell their story because if we're not being shaped by God's story, we will be shaped by another. That's why it matters. There's a cultural reason. Second, not just cultural, but there's also a personal reason. You need to tell your story because you need the truths of your story. One of the refrains that's repeated over and over again in Psalm 107, again, we're not looking at the whole psalm, but one line that gets repeated four times is this, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. What's the psalmist doing? He's reminding himself of God's past faithfulness because remembering God's past faithfulness encourages your trust in the present. And right now, today, some of you are in distress and in trouble. You're way down, you're suffering, you're unsure about how to proceed. It's God's past faithfulness. As we remember our story about how God has met us and what he's done, it's by reflecting on that that we're encouraged to trust him and rest in him in the present. You need to tell your story because you need the truths of your story. And you get to re-experience them as you share your story with others personal reason but also and lastly a relational reason why does it matter to tell your story because the people around you need this story too i'm talking about the people in your family or the people you live with the people you work with the people you see at the gym the people at your coffee shop all people anyone all of them everywhere need this story When we were preparing to go to London, I read a book that said, in London, people are deeply alone and deeply stressed. And my wife and I talked and we said, the message of Jesus tells stressed out people there's rest that is possible. And lonely and isolated people, community is possible in the church. And so why did we go to London? Yeah, to lead the church and to do all this stuff, but to boil it down, we went to London to tell our story. To say to people, this is what God can do. This is how God can save. This is how God can redeem. We're in London just to tell our story. And I don't know the ins and outs of life in Ventura, but my guess is there's probably some pretty stressed out and lonely people here too. People who could do with the good news of God's story. And I ask, who's going to tell them if not you? We need to tell our story because people need this story. And God has seen fit that the way in which the story is made known is through his people sharing it. That's why it matters to tell the story. But at this point, some of you were asking, well, how on the earth do I do it? How do I tell my story? This is the practical question. Okay, I see what the story is, but how do I share it? And that's an important question. Because for some, as you hear me saying, tell your story, talk about what God has done, it immediately tenses you up and it fills you with fear, kind of anxiety. You're really intimidated at the thought of sharing your story because you say, what if somebody asks me a question that I can't answer? You know, what if they get all theological on me? Or some of you feel like a hypocrite. You don't feel prepared or able to tell people about what God has done in your life because you see all the ways you're inconsistent and falling short and not living up to what you think are God's standards. So you feel hypocritical even at the thought of talking to people about Jesus. These are all the objections that come up. How can I share the story? Here's what I love about Psalm 107. It tells us to share our story, but it doesn't tell us how to. It doesn't give us a roadmap. So when I ask the question, how do you tell your story? Here's the answer, however you can. There is no one size fits all. For some of you, it'll be long, eloquent sentences and giving people books. For others, it'll be not as eloquent sentences and maybe tweets. For others, it's gonna be deeds of kindness and setting the table and saying, come have a meal. I don't know what the way you're gonna tell your story is, but what matters is that you do, not how you do. Because God made you uniquely with your own temperament and disposition. There isn't a one size fits all way to tell your story in the same way that we're not all the same people. So tell your story however you can in the ways God made you. One of my favorite examples of this is in John chapter nine. In John 9, we read about a man who was blind from birth, but then Jesus came into his life and he healed him. And this man who was blind, now healed, is in a few moments being interrogated by enemies of Jesus. You know, Jesus had enemies and they come along and they find this formerly blind man who's been healed and they start peppering him with questions. Who healed you? What was he like? Where was he from? How could he do it? And this <laughs> formerly blind man is overwhelmed as he's being peppered with questions and interrogated by these enemies of Jesus. So eventually he says, guys, stop. I can't answer all of your questions, but one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. I used to not be able to see, but then Jesus came into my life and everything is different because he did. That's my story. Yeah, but what about in Haka? I can't answer all your, I don't know the answer. But I was blind and now I see. What's that? Is that evangelism? Sure. But he's just telling his story. He's just saying, I met Jesus and nothing has been the same since. That's telling your story. So how do you share it? However you can. But this leads as we now come towards the end of our sermon to ask this question. What if I don't feel these things are true of me? How do I know if this story has become my story? You know, you say, I'm here today and you've described a love that never ends, but I don't feel loved by God. I feel isolated. You've talked about freedom from a terrible foe, this enemy of sin and death, but I feel like I'm in bondage right now. I'm not free. Others are feeling more lonely and isolated than they've ever felt. The idea that the church is a family feels totally abstract. And still others don't feel comfortable in their own skin. We don't feel like we're at home. So it's one thing to see what the story is, but how can we know that it's true for us? How can we experience it afresh today? We want to tell the story, but we have to know that it is our story if we're going to be a people that proclaim it. So how can we know? Well, the answer is in the text. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. That word redeemed is crucial because if a people have been redeemed, that means there's a redeemer. There's someone who's done the redeeming. And the whole story of the Bible is not what you have to do to be right with God, but what God has done to save and rescue you. And actually, as you look at this psalm, you see that God is the one who does everything. It's his love that endures forever. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who frees us from a terrible foe. He's the one that gathers. In other words, God is the one who's active. We're passive. You are not the hero of your story. Jesus is. Jesus is the hero we need. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter three puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Paul saying the rescuing, the renewing, the redeeming work of God, how does that become true for you? Looking to Jesus on the cross. On the cross as Jesus died, he took your place. He paid for your sin. He brings you into a new family. Everything about our story that we long for to be true and to be experienced in new and deep ways is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. This isn't about going and doing something. It's about resting in what God has already done. Christ redeemed us. Now here's how I want to close this sermon. And I don't normally close sermons like this but I'm actually gonna read you now a few passages of scripture. And what I wanna do is show you by reading certain verses, how the very parts of our story that I've just articulated, love and freedom, family and home, are actually and immediately made possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. And here's what this means for you before I read these verses. For some of you today, you don't identify as a Christian. And I want you to know, I want you to hear clearest day. You can have a love that never ends, a family that you belong to, deep freedom, and a home because of Jesus. Those things can be true of you because of what Jesus has done. There are others of you who say, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for a long time. Today you get to experience these things in a fuller and deeper way, in a new way, because of what Jesus, what we all need is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so the verses will be on the screen, but maybe you want to close your eyes and let these verses wash over you. But friends, let me ask you, how do you know that you have a love that never ends? We read, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. And so as we look to the cross, we see and experience in Jesus the enduring, unstoppable love of God for you. How do you know that you have been freed from sin and death and the devil, the terrible enemy? Jesus, by his death, might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their life have been held in slavery. Jesus is our hero who went toe-to-toe with the greatest enemy and he won. And now your victory is in his victory. That's where your freedom comes from. How do you know that you have a family that you belong to Jesus, it was his purpose to create in himself one new humanity out of two, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. God says to you, there is a seat at my table and it's got your name on it because of what Jesus did on the cross. We're a family. And how do you know that you have a home that fits you? Because Jesus, on the very night before he died, looked at his friends and he promised, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is saying, I've got a place for you. I'm going to come get you and you're going to be with me and with each other forever in a home that fits. This story is possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross, dying in your place. You're not the hero of your story. Jesus is. So now is the time to receive him, to rest in him, to see him more clearly. Receive and rest in what Jesus has done and then let's go and tell our story. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for Psalm 107. Thank you for the lessons that are here. But now we pray by the power of your spirit, take everything we've said, take everything we've studied and change us, transform us, help us in this moment to encounter Jesus, to experience him in fresh and personal and powerful ways that now for your glory and for our good as we pray together, as we plead together in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're now led in song, this is a time for us to take what we've heard, to take what God is saying to you, and to respond to him. We do that by praying. We have leaders in the church who will be available on the sides of the auditorium to pray with you. Maybe there's something you heard in the sermon or something happening in your life that you'd love to pray about with another person, join the leaders and pray. For others, you'd like to come forward and use these carpets to kneel or to give physical posture to what's happening in your heart. And so you can do that with the carpets that are up front. And of course, there's also communion available, a way to commune and to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. That's available for you to come forward to receive. But this is a time, as we're led in Saul, to respond, to experience afresh the story of God's rescue. Let's do that now together.